Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This week, an episode about memoirs. First up, how do you handle a diagnosis of cancer at age 22? Suleika Juad joins us to talk about her memoir, Between Two Kingdoms. Then, what makes for a great comedian memoir? The Times' comedy critic Jason Zinneman will be here to talk about some of his favorites. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, my colleagues and I will talk about what we're reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. It's February 19th. I'm Pamela Paul. Suleika Juwad joins us now from rural New Jersey. Her first book is called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted. Suleika, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Pamela. So this book came out originally, I believe, from a blog that you did for The New York Times called Life Interrupted. Can you start with how that blog came about and what it was about? So I received a diagnosis of leukemia when I was 22. And in those early weeks of being in the hospital and undergoing chemo, I had all kinds of grand ambitions about what I was going to do with this strange time on bed rest. I had packed a suitcase full of books, including War and Peace, which was on my bedside table. But, you know, as the treatment began and and the side effects started to set in, I had so little energy. I never read a single one of those books. And a kind of despair began to sink in as I realized that my life had bifurcated. There was this before diagnosis and this after. And I really struggled to figure out what I could possibly do from the confines of a hospital room. And so I returned to something I'd always leaned on in difficult times, which was keeping a journal. And I wrote every day. I made this commitment to myself and it didn't matter how good the quality of the writing was or how long it was. Sometimes I wrote a couple of sentences, sometimes just a word, occasionally the F word. But I think I was trying to make sense of the circumstances I'd found myself in. And over the course of keeping that journal, it turned into a kind of reporter's notebook. I'd had aspirations of becoming a foreign correspondent before my diagnosis. And while I couldn't travel or interview anyone or really leave my hospital room bubble, I began to report from the front lines of my hospital bed on a very different kind of conflict zone. And that journal really became the source material for the Life Interrupted column. And I was interested not just in kind of excavating this experience of illness, but thinking through the way in which age impacts how we experience major life interruptions. 
for you at the time, of course, it was the before diagnosis and the after diagnosis. Obviously, from this vantage point, you've been healthy for about six years. It feels more like a between period, thus perhaps the title of your book, Between Two Kingdoms. This idea of interruption was a hopeful one. I had this belief that I needed to endure the treatments. And then once I was well, I would get to return to my life and to the person that I'd been. But that didn't happen. I very quickly realized after, you know, nearly four years in treatment that I couldn't return to the person I'd been BC before cancer. And that in fact, the hard work of healing did not end with a cure. It was really where that healing began. And I found myself in this strange kind of in-between place. The title of my memoir, Between Two Kingdoms, is a reference to the brilliant Susan Sontag, who wrote about how we all have dual citizenship in the kingdom of the sick and in the kingdom of the well. But even though I wasn't sick on paper anymore, I felt as far as I possibly could have from being the healthy, happy, 27-year-old woman that I'd hoped to be on the other side of this. And so, you know, the book is an examination of those years of illness and the impact that it had not just on me, but on my family, my entire community. But really, it's about aftermaths and what we do when our life is upended and we have to learn how to live again. Describe a little bit what you mean by the difference between moving on and moving forward. So when I finished treatment, I had this notion that I needed to move on from illness. And I very quickly realized that moving on is a kind of myth. And as much as I tried to do just that, it wasn't possible. And so I really needed to learn how to move forward with my illness and its imprints on my life, on my body, on my mind, and to carry that wreckage with me as I try to find my way forward. I want to give people a sense of what that meant by contrasting it a little bit with the person you were before your diagnosis. So age 22, you graduate from Princeton, you move to Paris, you have a plan. What were you thinking you were going to do with your life at that point? I'd always loved to write. And I grew up in a household with a father who was a literature professor and a mother who was a painter. But the idea of writing as a career wasn't something that I really entertained as a possibility. And so I got a job as a paralegal at a law firm in Paris, and I hoped to become a journalist. Journalism seemed like the more practical day job version of writing, which given that I'd graduated shortly after the Great Recession, in retrospect, strikes me as incredibly naive. But that was my plan. I hoped to travel back to Tunisia, where my father's family's from, and where what was later known as the Arab Spring was underway, and to start reporting on that experience. But I never got to do any of that. And overnight, I found myself on a plane headed back home, and I never returned to my job. I never returned to my Paris apartment. At what point did you realize that something was wrong, was going wrong with your health? And do you remember 
the moment when you got your diagnosis? During my senior year of college, I had this mysterious itch, and it wasn't a metaphorical itch to travel the world or, you know, some quarter life crisis, but it was this literal physical maddening itch. And though I didn't realize it at the time, that was the first symptom. But over those months after graduation, I started to fall ill with colds and bouts of bronchitis, and my skin turned so pale that it looked almost translucent. But like a lot of 22-year-olds, the idea of illness wasn't really something that was in my vocabulary. I felt immortal. And to add to that confusion, I went to see a number of doctors, all of whom you know, sent me home with antibiotics or treated whatever specific symptom I was presenting with, but weren't really stepping back to look at the big picture. And I think this experience is one that a lot of us have had where we know something is wrong and either we don't feel our symptoms are being taken seriously, or in my case, I truly wasn't taking the symptoms seriously myself. And so when I found myself in an emergency room and my blood counts had dropped to a point that if I didn't board a flight immediately to go home, I wouldn't be allowed to fly at all. I actually bought a round trip ticket set for two weeks later. And I think I needed to believe that it was going to be a round trip journey. But some part of me knew that something was seriously wrong. As for the experience of actually getting my diagnosis, after months of misdiagnosis as terrifying and devastating as learning that I had leukemia was, it was also strangely a relief to know that I wasn't a hypochondriac, that I wasn't making up these symptoms, or that you know my deeper fear was that I was someone who couldn't somehow cut it in the adult world. And suddenly I had an explanation for my fatigue, for my pallor, for the itch. Did you think when you got that diagnosis, did you think that, I mean, you talk about how you felt, you know, young and invincible and, you know, when you're, when you're in your early 20s, did you think that it was possible that you might die or did you not allow for that possibility or were you consumed by that possibility? I think like a lot of new patients, I spent those first couple of nights going down a very dark WebMD hole and Googling you know, my prognosis. And I learned from that research that about one in four patients with my type of leukemia survived. And when I read that, my blood turned to ice. And I remember praying that my parents hadn't seen that statistic, although I'm sure they were in the room right next door doing the very same Googling I was doing. And pretty early on, I also learned and was told by my doctors that I had about a 35% chance of long-term survival. So my mortality became this ever-present companion during those years. You mentioned earlier that you intended to read all these books during your sickness, which is probably a very natural response of many bookish people to the idea of having some downtime but that you didn't ultimately read them. I'm curious if you read any cancer memoirs either during that period or after that inspired you. For that first year, I mostly stayed away from them. I was having to confront my own cancer day in, day out, and I didn't really have the space to read other 
illness narratives. And I think the other thing I struggled with was that a lot of these memoirs were written from the perspective of someone who had survived their diagnosis. And I very much was in the trenches of my illness and knew that there was a high likelihood that I wouldn't survive it. One book, though, that I did read over and over and over again was The Autobiography of a Face by Lucy Greeley. And it became my kind of sick girl Bible, and it still is. Oh, that's such an amazing book. She is so extraordinary. And I think, you know, she's one of the few memoirists that I've come across that really grapples with the lingering imprints of illness long after a diagnosis, long after survival, and the way in which trauma haunts you and and follows you, which in her case was, you know, her disfigurement by the jaw cancer that she'd had as a child. The other book that I really loved was Sarah Mingus's Two Kinds of Decay. She, you know, writes with this kind of surgical precision. And I'm not sure if I was kind of reading into this, but I found in my own writing that my sentences became shorter. Energy was limited and the experience of staring my mortality in the eye had a way of stripping away all the fluff and really kind of weaponizing my gaze and and, and had this clarifying centering effect. It's interesting because Lucy Greeley, who was, I took a writing class from her, actually. Um, she was a poet also, and she had that very kind of spare, pointed language in her memoir. Yeah, I think all of my favorite memoirs are written by authors who are first and foremost poets. And I'm reminded of a line by Adrian Rich, and I'm going to paraphrase it and may butcher it, but she says, that which is under concealment in us explodes into poetry. And I think that's especially true of any sort of traumatic experience and certainly of illness. There's this way in which, you know, when a tragedy occurs or when you receive a diagnosis, people say, I have no words. And I began to understand that finding words for this experience wasn't just necessary, but crucial to being able to make meaning out of it and maybe even to transform it into something artful and useful. Were there times at which that was difficult, just finding those words? I think what was difficult wasn't finding words, but, you know, writing from a place of unvarnished platitudes. When you're sick, you get bombarded with all kinds of bumper sticker sayings. You're told to find the silver lining, that everything happens for a reason, or the the one that I hated the most was that, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Because in my case, it certainly felt like I had been given more than I could handle. So for me, you know, I really was focused on writing toward the silence and toward the shadows and, and really writing about the experiences that maybe aren't as palatable, but that from my perspective needed to be unveiled. I wrote about the infertility I learned about via Google search that no doctors had told me about. Do you think they're afraid to tell you about that? Because it's it's almost never discussed, the fact that you go through 
early menopause and become infertile when you undergo certain kinds of cancer treatment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sex and sexual health is something that a lot of people feel squeamish talking about. I think, you know, in the case of my medical team, they were focused on the cancer and they weren't as aware necessarily of the ways in which these other sort of byproducts of my cancer and its treatment might affect me. But of course, as you know, a young woman in my 20s, I was very much focused on those things. Preserving my ability to be a mother felt like a kind of lifeline to an uncertain future, even if I didn't yet know whether I, I wanted to have biological children. And so writing about those experiences, writing about the guilt, the shame, the rage, the kind of uglier aspects of what happens when we're brought down to our most savage self felt important. They were very much the words I wished to read, in part because within the isolation of that experience, it was easy for me to think that perhaps I wasn't the only one or that I should be suffering better somehow or you know, being more stoic about this experience. Thinking in those terms about the words that you wish to read, would you choose an excerpt from the book, words that you wish you had been able to read at the time? So this is from a chapter called The In-Between Place, and it's the opening of part two of my book. Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick, Susan Sontag wrote in Illness as Metaphor. Although we all prefer to use only the good passport, sooner or later each of us is obliged, at least for a spell, to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. By the time I reached my last day of chemo, I'd spent the majority of my adult's life in that other realm, the kingdom of the sick no one cares to inhabit. Initially, I'd clung to the hope of a short sojourn, one in which I wouldn't have to unpack my bags. I'd resisted the label of cancer patient, believing I could remain the person I'd been. But as I grew sicker, I'd watched my old self vanish. In the place of my name, I had been issued a patient ID number. I learned to speak fluent medicalese. Even my molecular identity had morphed. When my brother's stem cells engrafted in my marrow, my DNA had irreversibly mutated. With my bald head, pallor, and port, illness became the first thing that people noticed about me. As months bled into years, I'd adapted to this new land as best I could, befriended its inhabitants, even carved out a career within its confines. In its terrain, I'd built a home, accepting not only that I might stay there for a while, but that likely I would never leave. It was the outside world, the kingdom of the well, that had grown alien and frightening. But for me, for all patients, the end goal is eventually to leave the kingdom of the sick. In many cancer wards, there's a bell that patients ring on their last day of treatment, a ceremonial tolling that signals a transition. It's time to say goodbye to the eerie and changeless fluorescence of hospital rooms. It's time to step back into sunlight. It is where I find myself now, on the threshold between an old familiar state 
and an unknown future. Cancer no longer lives in my blood, but it lives on in other ways, dominating my identity, my relationships, my work, and my thoughts. I'm done with chemo, but I still have my port, which my doctors are waiting to remove until I'm further out of the woods. I'm left with the question of how to repatriate myself to the kingdom of the well, and whether I ever fully can. No treatment protocols or discharge instructions can guide this part of my trajectory. The way forward is going to have to be my own. Wow. Those are words apparently that you needed to read, but maybe words that we all need to read. We haven't had a chance to talk about a huge amount in your book, much of which takes place after your recovery and this journey you take to meet the people who corresponded with you while you were ill. But hopefully that will leave many listeners eager to read the book themselves. Suleika, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Suleika Juwad's first book is called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted, and it's reviewed this week on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Tina Jordan joins us now to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the book review. Tina, thanks for being here. Hey, Pamela. Thanks for having me. All right. What are we going to talk about? Today, we're going to talk about bylines because in the very beginning, only some reviews in the book review were signed. In fact, it was the ones by well-known critics and scholars. And I I think that you would be pleased, Pamela, and you know, in an era where we now get many of the great scholars and writers and thinkers of the day to write reviews for us. The same was true only a few years into the book review. I want to read you a few lines from 1905's holiday issue in which the editor said that it was, quote, remarkable for the large number of valuable reviews from writers of eminence in their respective fields. Now, when I went through those reviews, of course, I didn't recognize any of those names, but never mind. They were big names of their day. But the fact is that it was unusual for reviews to be assigned. And there were a fair number of very critical reviews early on. I want to point your attention to one that 
was a review of the collected plays of George Bernard Shaw, in which the reviewer, who did not have a byline, said he has not a touch of the poetical in his composition, and the critic and satirist, who is not a bit of a poet, cannot hope to win wide renown as a dramatist. And then he goes on, he says, these plays are ones which multitudes of readers would find intolerably dry. And he gets in his last licks at the end where he says, a striking portrait of the artist serves as the frontispiece. His face is long and narrow, the brow high, the eyes shifty, the nose large, broad, and blunt, the hair and beard scant. Not a handsome man, surely. And one who, except for the oddity of his dress and views, would never have attracted much notice. It should be noted that there are 10,000 men and women in American England writing smart, partly original, wholly unactable plays. Wow. You know, it's interesting. There's a certain advantage to no bylines. And I obviously there are disadvantages, but I started off writing for The Economist, which still does not have bylines to this day on their pieces or on their reviews. And back at the period you're talking about, really, there were very few bylines on any criticism. There weren't bylines in Time magazine, for example. I mean, that was the norm at the time, right? It was the norm. It obviously gave people a bit of pause when reviews like this came out. The paper's publisher, Adolf Ox, would get letters from friends who had written books, you know, and they'd seen these reviews and they were worried about them. We we unearthed in the New York Public Library archives of the New York Times some of these letters and Ox, to his credit, here's the answer from Ox where somebody's asking for a good book review. I should be pleased to have notice taken of your book. Of course, in such matters, as you will understand, I do not interfere. In fact, cannot do so without demoralizing our organization. And goes on to stress, look, I can't promise you a good review. And that's 1898. Very interesting. When did bylines begin again in the book review? There were some bylines at the very beginning. And by 1905, when... The book review solicited a review from an important scholar or author or thinker. Those reviews were signed. It was everything else that wasn't. Well, our names are on this conversation, so we are we are going to be held responsible. Tina, thanks so much. I'll be back next week with another oddball tidbit from the archives. Jason Zinneman joins us now from Brooklyn. He is the New York Times' comedy critic. Jason, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we debated about whether to call you a comedy critic or the on-comedy columnist. I'm going to go with comedy critic because it implies that you tell us if something is funny or not. (laughs) That's fine. Whatever. But that's not really what you do. I mean, just for our listeners, what is your job normally like and what is it like now in this new, very not funny time we're in? It's completely transformed the job. I mean, it's normally about, you know, every week and a half or two weeks. I'll write either a review of a stand-up special or write a piece about live comedy or something about improv. But, you know, since live comedy has mostly disappeared and stand-up specials have slowed down, the job has transformed into being much more digital to follow what comedy has become, which is also much more digital. All right. I'm going to ask a kind of, I don't know, I guess maybe it's an inflammatory question, but I I have to say I wonder about this and I've wondered about it recently, which is that 
comedy gets dated and mores change and what was funny once might no longer be funny now or might not be allowed to be funny or it's not okay to consider it funny. And the reason I bring this up is I rewatched an old Eddie Murphy movie that I had not seen since the 1980s with one of my kids. And I realized, wow, this would not be made today. And I wonder how that affects your work and the way in which you view comedy. I have a little bit of a, a minority opinion on this. I think the common wisdom is that comedy is what you're saying, that comedy dates badly. But I think the truth is, you know, everything dates badly to some extent. You could find plenty of movies from the 80s that aren't Eddie Murphy stand-up specials that don't date well. And there is comedy. If you listen to, you know, Bob Newhart specials from the early 60s, they're still really funny. Obviously, some things age worse than others. But I actually am like kind of fascinated by how much comedy does age well. Part of my job, much like the comedian's job, is to keep an eye on where kind of sensitivities are shifting because that has a huge impact on not only what people get offended by, but also, you know, how punchlines and setups work because comedy is about often playing with, you know, what is going to make people tense, what's going to make people uncomfortable, and then how to puncture that. Yes, I was going to say something very similar to that, which is that it's about pushing the envelope, but really about making people feel uncomfortable. And that's something that is in and of itself become kind of an unfashionable concept. Well, yes. Although I I mean, I wrote a column a few years ago that had a kind of a provocative title, which was something like political correctness is good for comedy, which is exactly the opposite of what 99% of what comedians say. But the argument is basically if part of the job of a, of a certain kind of comedy is, as you know, George Carlin said, to find the line and then to cross it. Well, if there's more and more lines drawn, there's more and more opportunities to play with that line. Now, of course, that means that some people could get upset and offended, but that, that's always been true. A lot of the critique of cancel culture and all this is a historical. There always have been people pushing back on comedians. And if anything, now with the internet democratizing who can say what, you now have people who could say all kinds of things for a global audience that is unimaginable in the 80s or 90s when you had a few gatekeepers controlling things. So I think you could almost make an argument, which is very out of fashion to make this argument, that not only is cancel culture not destroying comedy, but actually if you want to say something offensive for a global audience, it's never been a better time than now. All right. Well, I'm always comfortable feeling out of fashion, so I'm glad the direction <laughs> this is going in. But but the reason I brought up this question is because what you did this week in the book review and what I want to talk about today is that you gave us a history of the comedian memoir, the comedian book. Sometimes it's memoir slash book of essays in nine books. So I wanted to talk about that because, again, that raises that question of like, are these people still funny? Let's start with how you decided to define what a comedian memoir is. Like, did you have certain books that don't make the cut because, I don't know, they're ghostwritten or because they were the second book by this person or the third book? How did you choose these? It's a good question. And I, and I sort of made rules and then broke them. I mean, it's impossible to make a list, any kind of list, without missing things. But I basically tried to focus on books that did include memoir, a person's life, not books of jokes. And... I didn't pick the nine best ones. I kept an eye on two things, quality 
and importance. So there's definitely a bias towards influential books, bigger books on this list. So I tried to give a sense of like, if you were trying to begin to get a sense of the history of 20th century comedy, these books are a great start. You know, the comedy memoir is like the worst genre of book that I can't get enough of. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, 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 I'm like a, I love this assignment because I sort of gobble up comedy memoirs, even though the vast, vast majority of them are terrible. But why? Why are they terrible? Are these people like funnier when they deliver their lines in person? Is it that we lose the tone and the body language and all of that? That's a big part of it, which is that there's no reason somebody who's good at stand up would necessarily be a great writer. But I think the other big reason is that you don't need to make a great book to become a bestseller. So that that sort of central issue, <laughs> it's same with like political books. Most books by politicians are bad because they don't need to be good to be successful. And the same logic applies here. And so what happens is a lot are ghostwritten, a lot are hodgepodges, and a lot are just cynical and commercial. You know, I think that another potential hurdle has to do with pacing, right? Because there's a certain kind of pace to a joke when you're doing stand-up where it's like, here's the lead up and then there's the punchline. And probably to read a book that's just a series of that rhythm would be incredibly tiresome. Yes, completely. And I think the books that try to do that are less successful. The ones that are try to write an actual book tend to be more successful. The ones that adjust the form. I mean, what I love about the, the, the memoir is the stories, the gossip, the feuds, the performance, really. It's interesting to see somebody who's great at one thing try a new form and see how they experiment and play with it. And sometimes, you know, as with, you know, these books and a lot of others, something wonderful and unexpected happens. All right. I feel like we've done this incredibly long run up without giving people the punchline. So I'm going to run through really quickly, not the, all the titles, but the names of the comedians. And then we'll talk about some of these books just so that people know what it is we're referring to here. So we go from Fred Allen in 1954 to Harpo Marx in 1961, Lenny Bruce in 65, Joan Rivers in 86, Richard Pryor in 95, Nora Ephron, 2006. Okay, there's an interesting exception there, but we'll talk about that. Steve Martin, 2007, Tina Fey in 2011. And then one that didn't make our print edition, but is on here, so we'll talk about it, which is Trevor Noah in 2016. Let's start with Fred. Fred Allen, Treadmill to Oblivion. It's a good title. 1954. Many of our listeners probably have no idea who he is. Yeah, he's the maybe the greatest radio comedian of all time, and he's relatively unknown now. And what's great about this book is that it captures this lost golden age of 1930s radio comedy at the same time as it reveals how little has changed in comedy. I mean, he he had a kind of daily show-like topical show. What really made his show was this feud with Jack Benny, who's probably the, the other great radio comedian of that time, which went on for two years of them kind of insulting each other back and forth until they finally had a show together, which was just a, a blockbuster of its time, only rivaled in ratings by uh, you know FDR's fireside chat. And a lot of contemporary comedy comes from there. So it's fascinating to read that, but it's also really interesting in that, as you could tell from the title, Treadmill to Oblivion, it's a kind of has a sort of apocalyptic tone where, you know, he's seeing television coming and he's predicting, he's the, he's one of many, many people who see a new technology 
and see and pronounce this the death of comedy. And so you hear this echoed in people talking about social media today or talking about the internet or streaming or Zoom shows now. You see a guy who's seeing television take over and he says comedians are on a treadmill to oblivion. Okay, so that sounds sad, which leads me to an obvious question. Does a comedian's memoir need to be funny? Or is are there good comedian memoirs that are actually about, you know, all of the personal trauma and tragedy that led them to such a career? I would say disproportionately sad. I mean, comedians are very sad. You know, they're, they're, it's the, the cliche of the kind of sad clown has has some truth to it. And in a, a lot of these books, I mean, certainly Joan Rivers and Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, what, what's the most fascinating parts of them are not the jokes at all. They're the, the, the dark spots. And there definitely is. I mean, you see, Fred Allen is not thought of even among comedy as someone who is some dark comedian at all. But the kind of apocalyptic way he ends this book is typical of a, of a certain kind of sensibility of, of comedians that, that pops up in a lot of books. A lot, there, there is a kind of certain patterns that pop up in these memoirs. And one of them is that towards the end of their career, or at some point, they get kind of obsessed and preoccupied with something that, that hijacks the book. I'm interested in that idea of somewhere in their career and where the comedian memoir fits in in the timeline of someone's career. It could be capping the career, now I'm finally going to write my memoir, or it could be a launch pad. And I'm curious, has there been some kind of trend from maybe the the former to the latter? Yeah, I think there's definitely a trend. I think in the, the that comedians are writing them younger and younger now. I think the two big turning points were Howard Stern's private parts in the 80s, which was just a massive blockbuster, but more importantly, Tina Fey's book, which really set the template for the modern comedian memoir and was such a huge hit that everybody just started getting, you know, as soon as you had some success, a publisher was giving you a book contract. You started seeing not people looking back on their career, like, you know, Henny Youngman wrote his memoir when he was close to death. Now you see people who are writing them in their 20s and 30s. Okay, I want to go to the next book on your list, Harpo Speaks by Harpo Marx in 1961. Again, like it's crazy to me the idea that someone wouldn't know who Harpo Marx is. But for those who don't, who was he and what does he do in this book? Harpo Marx is part of the Marx Brothers, which is one of the great comedian teams ever. And he was the silent one who had a horn. And you would think that Groucho Marx, who was the one with the, the cigar, who was the kind of wisecracking one, would have written the great memoir in this group. His memoir is okay. There's kind of a crazy story in it about going to a brothel with Charlie Chaplin in Utah that stands out, but it's not anywhere near as great as Harpo Speaks, which is really one of the great showbiz memoirs, period, right up there with Act One, Moss Hart. You know, here's a guy who they basically was incredibly famous, but you never heard speak. And then it turns out he's a a beautiful writer. He has incredible stories that span from vaudeville to Broadway to Hollywood, but that also gives this portrait of the Algonquin Roundtable. He was friends with all those people, which he gave kind of snapshots of these scenes with Dorothy Parker's witticisms and Kaufman, et cetera, that really burnished reputation of the Algonquin Roundtable. And, and at the center of it, I mean, one of the reasons I, I love it is this portrait of a friendship with uh, Alexander Wolcott, the critic, 
And you know, another genre I love is sort of dramatic portraits of critics. This is one of the greatest portraits. I wonder why you like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I I mean, most of them are they, they're portrayed as as sadistic villains, which I love as well. I mean, there's great portraits of critics like that are uh, vampires, etc., parasites. This one is that he's this he's also a kind of flamboyant, complex, over the top, full of enthusiasms, constantly feuding. There's an incredible scene where he meets him for the first time. And Wolcott kind of writes the review that breaks the Marx Brothers, that makes them, puts them on the map. And then Wolcott goes to visit him backstage. And he walks in and he looks exactly like Harpo Marx wants a critic to look, which is he's wearing an opera cape and a wide-brimmed hat and a mustache. And he says, the name's Wolcott. And, and this, not, I don't know if any of this really happened, but then, so then he like says, you are the funniest man I've ever seen on a stage. And he's, you know, very excited about this. And he's, they, they're talking and he feels kind of comfortable. He's making friends. And he feels like he belongs. He's this guy who didn't graduate second grade and now he's made it. And then at the end, Wolcott goes to shake his hand and Harpo decides to make a joke and he sticks his leg out to shake his hand because he was like a physical comedian. Wolcott pivots, has a hard pivot, and he says, he gets, he frowns and he says, kindly confine your baboonery to the stage, and he storms out. And so <laughs> there's a lot of like scenes like that of like romantic portraits of showbiz. All right. Well, you've persuaded me. You had me at, at Moss Hart because Act One, of course, is one of the great memoirs of all time. I want to skip over Lenny Brewson because you say in your roundup that there's more raw terror in this book than a thousand suicide notes. Explain. Well, there was um, a documentary by Joan Rivers came out about 10 years ago called A Piece of Work, which is a spectacular documentary that portrayed her as this sort of comedian warrior who was incredibly hardworking. And, you know, her vision of comedy is one of constant rejection and pain and suffering and warfare. You know, she says, and this book was the template for that. And it's a very poignant book full of pain. You know, there's great portraits of her parents, but also showbiz portraits. But, you know, she's someone who says that, you know, she doesn't understand people who say that they stumbled into comedy, that for her comedy requires, you know, an iron will and there's, I mean, I'm making the sound a lot harsher than it is. There's also a lot of, you know, quick, ruthless jokes in it and funny portraits of like, you know, 60s comedy of Jack Parr and, and Dick Gregory. She's, of course, an incredible gossip. But at the core of it, it, this is a dark book filled with insecurity and pain. I come away also just with an incredible amount of respect for her. All right. Another book that you included in here is Nora Ephron's I Feel Bad About My Neck and I don't know. She wrote so many great books. I didn't even know how you chose this, but I don't know how you chose it also because it's not a memoir and it's not written by a comedian. So why is she here? <laughs> it's a good question. It doesn't really belong. Like, is it just that it had to be like you had to have Nora Ephron in there? It was, you know, I, I kept taking her off and then I read it again and it was just too important. You know, you see so much of the modern romantic comedy in the voice of Nora Ephron. I mean, she obviously made a lot of them. She has real comic bits in this book that feel also very influential, you know, stuff that the difference between being a parent and parenting, stuff that really had an impact. And then, you know, there was the question of, is this a memoir? You know, she has an essay in here, which is 
the story of my life in 3,500 words or less, that is better than 99% of the comedian memoirs out there. Her mother famously said, you know, everything is copy. And that's sort of the theme of the book. She told the story of her divorce with Carl Bernstein, say, in many different forms. But she tells it in like two or three paragraphs in that essay. And it's it's heartbreaking and shocking and also funny. You say that you took this off and you put it back on. You took it off and you put it back on. What books did you take off and not put back on? What are the ones that you feel like, I really wanted to include it, but I didn't have room? There's a bunch. One is Heartland by Mort Saul. I almost put instead of Lenny Bruce's book. Lenny Bruce you know, and Mort Saul were contemporaries. There was a time when Mort Saul was even, you know, arguably more famous, influential than Lenny Bruce, but he had the misfortune of living a long life. And Lenny Bruce died young and became incredibly famous and, and mythologized. But Heartland is a fascinating book full of interesting kind of comedy history. That's one. Uh, Nell Scovell recently wrote a book called Just the Funny Parts, which is maybe the best book I've read from the point of view of someone who's a, a comedy writer in writer's rooms and also uh, a, a portrait of, of sexism in, in modern comedy that is very perceptive. There's, I mean, many, many other ones. Tiffany Haddish has a great book. Patton Oswald has written several books that both have sort of great memoir, but also criticism. Guy Branham is a comic that wrote a book called My Life as a Goddess that has some of the sharpest kind of comedy criticism in it, along with memoirs. So there's many, 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 many more. So obviously we should have given you two pages, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who hasn't written a comedy memoir, someone either dead or alive, but you wish did? Like, who didn't uh, write one? That's such a good question. I think the biggest name that pops out is Johnny Carson. That would have been the biggest selling book ever because he was so famous and he was such a mystery to many people. Why didn't he do it? Johnny Carson was a very complicated, dark guy off stage, And I think he was very private. And what happened was is his lawyer wrote a book about him that was kind of a, a, a gossipy tell-all that because he didn't write it became the Johnny Carson book. So I think he should he should have written one. Or I wish he wrote one, but but you know maybe he really. One thing I read about in uh, in the Trevor Noah section is talk show hosts actually have not written as many books as stand ups. So David Letterman hasn't written one. Steve Allen, who was the first host of Tonight Show, didn't write a, a great memoir. Jack Parr has written a couple, but but Trevor Noah is definitely the the best one. But yeah, so he's one. Seinfeld uh, has written a few books, but I wouldn't call any of them memoirs. That that's another sort of big omission. I would say those are two big ones. And is there anyone who hasn't written one yet, but you hope will? I mean, you mentioned Seinfeld. Obviously, he's still alive and around. Maybe even someone up and coming, but you don't want to hear from them until <laughs> they're a bit older. You know who I would like to see write? Dave Chappelle. I would love to read Dave Chappelle's memoir. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does it. Another one I would say is Chris Rock actually wrote a memoir in the 90s, but it was kind of a quick you know, it, it mixed jokes in with it, but I bet you he would have a great story. All right, let's hope they're listening. Jason, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Jason Zinneman is the comedy critic for The New York Times. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. What's new? 
So we just got a pretty comprehensive and pretty devastating picture of what 2020 was like for booksellers. This was a really tough year for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, on this podcast before the pandemic, the shutdown, stores having to close, having to shift to sales online. So what the Census Bureau report showed was that bookstore sales fell by nearly 30% in 2020. They recovered a little bit in November and December because that's a big period for holiday shopping, but sales still fell 15% in December. And the thing that's really concerning, I think, not just the, the overall health of the retail ecosystem and, and how bookstores are faring, is that book sales are up. So this means that the way the customers are getting their books and where they're buying them from has radically shifted. And I think a lot of people in the industry are concerned that those behaviors become kind of automatic and ingrained. And they're wondering what this means for how people are going to buy and discover books going forward. So do we know the share of books that went from online purchase pre-quarantine to now? So that was not broken out in the Census Bureau of figures. They were just looking at basically bookstore revenues and how they compared to 2019. But anecdotally from publishers, I'm told that the shift to online has been dramatic. Amazon has taken an even greater share of sales than they used to. Walmart and Target have gained a larger share of book sales. And the reason this is concerning, it's not just the health of, of bookstores themselves, but it means publishers worry that they, they won't be able to get as many titles in front of readers as they could in a physical space. You can imagine the difference between walking into a bookstore and what catches your eye versus going online and looking at, you know, there may be 10 covers that you see instead of dozens and dozens. And those kind of serendipitous purchases are lost. So book sales are still really strong. Everyone's reading a ton at home. I certainly am. I'm sure you are. And that's something to celebrate. But the really severe change in the retail ecosystem is something that has people concerned. Right. So it, it, it inhibits discoverability and exposure to new authors, new works, and probably favors, you know, oh, I'll just get the latest book by so-and-so or the book that has been everywhere yes, online. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like the, reinforced by the algorithm of what's already selling. So that's sort of what you tend to encounter or, you know, the biggest authors that you've already heard of, just like you said. And I think we're seeing that on the bestseller list at the New York Times, where there's a kind of stagnation factor for a number of books that you're like, really? Still that one? <laughs> Still there. Where the crawdads sing. It's been there for years. Um, right. I, th I thought everyone had read the book already, but no, there's more <laughs> people and they're making a movie. So that'll boost it again. But yeah, I think, I think publishers, authors are all grappling with this and maybe trying to come up with other ways to connect directly with readers, perhaps, or just new ways to inform readers about what's getting published. All right. Well, I am going to a bookstore this weekend. I don't know about you, Alexandra. Yeah, I've been doing curbside pickup from my local bookstore, Terrace Books, which I recommend to anyone in my corner of Brooklyn. It's a great place. All right. Alexandra, thank you. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles and John Williams. Hey, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. All right. Let's start with you, Greg. I feel like it's been a while. What are you reading? I'm reading Joan Didion's new essay collection, Let Me Tell You What I Mean. And I call it her new essay collection, but really it's like a new collection of old essays. These are um, 12 pieces 
they're arranged chronologically from the late 60s all the way up to 2000. And the first third of the book all comes from roughly the era of slouching towards Bethlehem, the late 60s. I think they're from the Points West column that she wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. And even though they feel more incidental than that work, the, the whole book has the feeling of leftovers in, in a way. There's pieces about the underground press and Gamblers Anonymous and not getting into Stanford. It's still fascinating. I'm, I'm a big Didion fan, and it's fascinating to see the way that these columns and essays and introductions, uh, there's an introduction to Robert Mapplethorpe's photos in here that she did, how it overlaps with her more significant work. As a narrator, Didion always comes across as a moderator or a mediator. She is fascinated by subcultures. She, she always writes about subcultures, but she's also maybe a little scared of them or scared of her own fascination with them. And so she holds herself at a remove, which leads to that cool reserve that's like the most famous part of her style. She's like a deep sea diver who's completely immersed in her subject but with the protective layer of the diving bell around her, which um, in her case is her intellect. So people talk about her prose style. It's maybe the thing she's most famous for, but it's impossible to read her without thinking about how intimately connected style is to habits of thought and observation to personality. I think it's the reason that her author photo is so iconic. Uh, there's never been a better match between person and prose or persona and prose. You have the cool cigarette and the impassive face and the big eyes taking everything in. One thing reading these essays, if there's an element of generosity in her fascination, there's there's also sometimes or, or almost always kind of a, a hint of condescension um, or, or repulsion in, in her reserve, in her remove. There's a piece about Gamblers Anonymous in here, and here's a, a sentence from that. She sits in on a meeting, and she's reporting on it almost in a talk of the town kind of a way, just quoting people. This one sentence, she says, I had not heard so many revelations of a certain kind since I used to fall into conversations on Greyhound buses under the misapprehension that it was a good way to learn about life. <laughs> and and it, that sentence is so revealing <laughs> yeah, of, <that's> great. <laughs> of a worldview. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that's what I've been reading. It's sort of weird to think of any kind of word person who isn't a Joan Didion fan, but I just have to ask, John, are you a Didion completist as well? I'm definitely a fan. I'm, I'm not a completist as of yet. There's a lot I have left to read. I've read the classic 60s collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem and, and the White Album. And I, I've read Play It As It Lays, her novel, one of her novels, and, and more of the nonfiction. I forget in which books. But I'm, I'm a big fan of that voice of, it's not very fashionable, actually. It's funny that you say you can't imagine people not being fans. I think that there are people who admire her writing, but who feel like the condescension gets in the way a bit. And I'm not one of those people. I I think you enjoy condescension. <laughs> I, I I enjoy condescension when when it is so sort of perfectly, as Greg put it, you know, built into the person's view. I don't like condescension as a pose, but I think that Didion, it's just very much her bedrock, who she is to be kind of to look askance at things. And so I don't mind that at all. I mean, it is interesting that she's become this kind of millennial poster girl, even though she was quite conservative in certain ways and didn't take any guff. I think in recent years, that's been complicated because I think maybe five or more years ago, you're right, it was just the poster girl thing. And now I think there is a caucus, if you will, <laughs> 
you know, who fights against her in a way because both because of the conservatism and because she looked down on some causes that are that are more popular these days. I was going to say that her conservatism is a little bit complicated and more so by today's politics. She's maybe not politically conservative, certainly not an ideologue. It's more a conservative temperament. And it's, again, that thing of this fascination with the subculture. She she profiles Nancy Reagan in a piece here that was later collected, I think, in the White Album, maybe in a, a slightly different version. And there's a sense, even writing about the Reagans in the governor's mansion in the late 60s, that she's looking down on them as a subculture. I mean, they're just as much a sideshow to her as the hippies in Haight-Ashbury. Yeah, I think the sort of lack of ideology in a way, at least through the reporting, is both what makes her still very readable and great and also frustrates some people who want her more to share an ideology. That's just my two cents. <laughs> I'll have the Didion Wars coming for me now. I apologize, <laughs> I apologize ahead of time. Because I'm still sort of making my way through a bunch of John le Carré books, and I talked about that last time I was on, I'm, I'm going to go back a bit to something I read earlier this year, but that I knew I would talk about at some point, which is this truly great novel called Her First American by Laura Siegel, who I talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast for another book, a memoir, well, a novel she wrote that was essentially a memoir in the form of a novel called Other People's Houses, which is also terrific. But whereas that book was sort of plainly told and, and straightforward, this is such a rich book. It starts a bit strangely, but I think once you're into it, it really casts a spell. It's about a woman who I think is 21 years old. Her name is Ilka Weisnix. She comes from Vienna to America, and she meets. The book opens with her meeting this large man named Carter Bayo, an intellectual, a black intellectual, on a train trip in the American West, which is very strange because the book soon after comes to New York City, and that's really it's it's truly a great New York novel as well as everything else. She befriends this guy who's a middle aged journalist writer. He he's reported on the UN. He's a he's a newspaper columnist. But he's also a total wreck. He he lives in a hotel where he drinks way too much, can't seem to stop himself, and is kind of on a rapid decline. And yet he knows so much about the way that America works and the way that race works in America. Obviously, he knows the black experience very intimately. He sympathizes and understands the Jewish situation in America. And Ilka befriends him, and she always sort of has one eye cast back on her past and trying to figure out some of her family's fate in the war while trying to adjust to become an American and take advantage of everything the, the country and the city has to offer intellectually. The amazing thing about this book, among other things, is that the character of Carter Bayo is based on someone real, a man named Horace Caton Jr., who Siegel knew for a few years and was close to. And sort of, she asked him, I think, for, for his permission to write about him, and he said yes. But before I knew that, when I was reading the book, he is such a vivid character. You know him so well. It's almost like watching, except with all the benefits of of literature too, like a really, really great actor embodying someone in a completely seamless way where you just feel in his presence. And it's funny because I said on Twitter or somewhere else, I, I mentioned that vividness and someone said, well, it, it kind of makes sense because he was based on a real life person that she knew. And I, and for a minute I thought, oh, okay, that's true. And then I thought, what percentage of people in novels are based on real people? I mean, probably <laughs> 90%, right? So so even though she had this experience with him and knew him so well, the way that she alchemizes him into this book, if that's a word, is one of the most remarkable things I've ever read. And 
it's funny because there's this great clip, and I'll finish with this online. If you look it up, there was a, I think, a German Jewish cultural institute that you had this, had a book club with this book just a few years ago. Siegel's in her early 90s now. And there's this video where she's talking for only four or five minutes in a, in a sort of introductory video about the book. And she touches on a lot of great things and has a lot of great lines. And one of the things she says is that she was really, you know, raring to go to write this character of Carter. And that the girl, she said, was harder to pin down, even though, as she says, she was based a lot on me. And so there's this funny thing where even though you get to know the, the Ilka very, very well, even though she's sort of the seagull stand and you get to know the other character, I think in, in some ways much more, much more vividly. And in the end, it really, it, it has so much to say in a, in a not heavy handed way about black and Jewish experience in America and the ways in which they overlap and the ways in which they don't. And in that way, it is incredibly of the moment and vital and feels just as necessary now. It was published in the mid eighties and it's about the fifties and it's very current now. So it kind of covers all these bases. Pamela, what are you reading these days? So I am going to talk about a book that probably both of you read or at least read in part, which is Barack Obama's A Promised Land. And I feel like many of our listeners have probably read it or at least intend to read it and have bought it, given what a bestseller it is. And it's interesting that you bring up that idea of time travel, because I had that in a way in this book. Some people talk about reading this book with this kind of bittersweet feeling or the sense of nostalgia for him as a president. What I felt was it just a weird time travel back to 2008, which is, of course, only 12 or I guess now 13 years ago, and yet felt like a millennium ago. And so there was this peculiar sense of going back to what feels like now a much more innocent age, but also you could sense in the reading of the book that he was writing it very much from our present moment. So that, you know, this book would have been different had he written it, let's say, immediately after leaving office and it came out, I don't know, 2016 or 2017, it felt like the events of the last three years in particular had weighed quite heavily on the way in which he viewed that earlier period. And to give you a sense of what I mean, I'm just going to read briefly from early in the book. This is when he is running for president. My staff's biggest fear was that I'd make a gaffe, the expression used by the press to describe any maladroit phrase by the candidate that reveals ignorance, carelessness, fuzzy thinking, insensitivity, malice, boorishness, falsehood, or hypocrisy, or is simply deemed to veer sufficiently far from conventional wisdom to make said candidate vulnerable to attack. I'm just, as an aside, this is basically all of us on Twitter <laughs> at any moment, or those of us who are silly enough to be on there, returning to Obama. By this definition, most humans will commit five to ten gaffes a day, each of us counting on the forbearance and goodwill of our family, co-workers, and friends to fill in the blanks, catch our drift, and generally assume the best rather than the worst in us. As a result, my initial instincts were to dismiss some of my team's warnings. On our way to our final stop in Iowa on announcement day, for example, Axe, that is David Axelrod, glanced up from his briefing book. You know, he said, the town we're going to, it's pronounced Waterloo. Right, I said, Waterloo. Axe shook his head. No, it's Waterloo, not Waterloo. Do that for me again? Waterloo, Axe said, his lips pursing just so. One more time. Axe frowned. Okay, Barack, this is serious. 
<laughs> it didn't take long, though, to appreciate that the minute you announced your candidacy for president, the normal rules of speech no longer applied, that microphones were everywhere and every word coming out of your mouth was recorded, amplified, scrutinized and dissected. So I found that to be one of the more, I don't know, humorous and human passages in the book. You know, I probably say about the book what a lot of people have said. First of all, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great book. I'm a fan of presidential biographies and memoirs when they're well done, and this was well done. But there is a certain restraint to it, as there is a certain restraint to Obama. You know, we all know, like, I think deep in our hearts, we all know, or at least believe strongly, many of us, that Obama, like when he is at home and it's just him and Michelle, that he lets loose and he like, he rips into the people he doesn't like. Mike, and he's like dancing and he's just doing things that we have only glimpsed like very, very briefly from an angle. But you don't get to see that really in this book all that often. And the other thing that you really don't get is news, apparently, according to some of my, our colleagues at the Times who reported on the first Obama administration, they say that they didn't learn that much new from this book. The reason I, I know that, and I guess the reason that I read this book somewhat quickly is I organized a kind of discussion of a book with some of our Times colleagues. And Dean Bakay, our editor, had the idea of inviting to this little discussion people who had reported on Obama when he was in office. So that was really interesting because, and I think all of us kind of just regular readers spent a lot of this conversation about this book, just listening to them talk about their experience reporting on him. One of the most interesting things is that both of the reporters who were there, actually there were three who'd reported on him, but they said that they were cut off from interviews with Obama pretty early on into his presidency. Now, if people look back to Obama's presidency and they can sort of compare it with more recent events, more recent presidents say, They probably thought like, oh, that was the golden era of like, you know, a really nice relationship with the press, with The New York Times. But in fact, you know, no, it was actually not a cozy relationship. And Obama does write about the press critically in this book, which was interesting as well. The last thing I'll say, and then I want to hear from both of you and your thoughts, is that one of the things I thought was most interesting, and maybe my antennae were, I don't know, attuned to listening to this, but I was really interested in did you have any regrets? Were there things that you wish you had done differently? And it did seem to me that on certain issues, certain issues with regard to race, to technology and sort of big tech specifically, and to bank reform and to the extent of that reform, I felt like there were tones of maybe we should have done things somewhat differently. I don't know. What did you guys think? To one of the points you were making, I think I wasn't expecting... And I didn't read the book quite in full like you did, but I, I wasn't expecting bombshells or, or a different personality. What I liked was what I figured it would be, which is that here's this person who you knew was also observing a lot during this process that he obviously couldn't annotate while he was doing it. And so just to get, in addition to the scene with Axelrod that you described, things like his feeling about how it really felt to be campaigning, you know, in the South as the first person who might be a black president. Again, not even those things are, it's not like he writes in a coruscating tone about it, but he's honest and and clear-eyed in ways that you can't really say because it'll be turned into a gaffe or something, you know, on the trail. So it was just great to get that perspective when you know it, you knew it existed. I love the word coruscating. (laughs) It's my comment. (laughs) It's a good word. 
Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily picture Obama and Michelle dancing at home, <laughs> <laughs> except on occasion. And so the the Obama that you get in this book is very much the Obama that I expected, which he's incredibly reflective. He's warm and human. And all of that comes through in the book. But he is also, it, back to Didion again, the, the prose style reflects the habits of thought and the the personality himself. And so here he's second guessing everything. Uh, could I have done this better? Could I, you know, and that, that all is consistent with who we saw as president. One thing I would say about this book is before Barack Obama was a politician or, or kind of as he was coming up as a politician, he was always a writer. He, he was a writer before he dreamed of running for office. And he's really an excellent writer. The prose in this book is really great, vivid, but there is a certain withholding that is just, he, he's careful by nature. It, it doesn't shock me that our reporters said they didn't learn anything new because I, I think that he was probably careful not to be too revealing. One thing that I think characterizes the entire book is he says at the beginning pretty explicitly that he's writing this book in many ways for young people. And so it reads as not pure inspiration, but it reads it reads really well, frankly, I think, for young people. Because one of the talents he has is very concisely and compellingly summarizing events, complicated events in an accessible way, you know, whether it's Deepwater Horizon or the financial crisis. It's a really good primer on the events of 2008 to 2012. Like I felt I felt like I'd gotten a good catch up on recent history reading it. Well, he really gives you a sense of what the presidency itself is like as things are coming at you and you need to kind of compartmentalize and deal with them. And you've just started to address something and boom, the next crisis is on your doorstep. It's kind of like being an editor at the book review, right, Greg? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's find down the titles. I'm reading Joan Didion. Let me tell you what I mean. I read Her First American by Laura Siegel. And I read A Promised Land by Barack Obama. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.